Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Jessica Knippel is a PhD student in women and religion at Claremont Graduate School in California and has been researching the ex-evangelical slash post-evangelical world for a while now. And this is a world that I'm part of. This podcast is part of in some way. And I was curious to talk with her. I feel like I've been kind of um, really thirsty for actual research on on this. And so I'm wondering what she and other colleagues have discovered, learned about this pretty massive exodus of mostly young people out of American evangelicalism. And I sort of wanted to know where my I personally and this podcast fell on kind of a continuum uh, within, within that uh, movement. So without further ado, let's get into that conversation. Jesse, thank you so much yeah, for joining exactly. me and, and for coming to the studio in person. You just lucked out because it's the holidays and I, I was traveling out. to Washington. Yeah, you went to school up here in Seattle and, and it worked out. And maybe you'll get into that as you answer my first question, which is, what is it about your own experience that led you to be academically interested in the ex-evangelical and post-evangelical world? Sure. So I am on my dad's side, third generation white evangelical and I'm parsing that out because I think there's a huge distinction based on the history of evangelicalism about white evangelicalism versus yeah. non-white. 
if you actually look at the historians who do research on evangelicalism, the yeah. one I would recommend, which is my favorite, because he's the only scholar so far that I've seen make the clear distinction between white evangelicals and non-white evangelicals, right. Right. would be um, Matthew Sutton, who's up at Western Washington, and his book, American Apocalypse. And he talks about those strains of evangelicalism, white and non-white, are still an apocalyptic mindset. But because of the history of slavery, the black apocalypse mindset has a different context and contour yeah. to power, to religion, to power dynamics, even though there are elements that are the same. That's really interesting. L- let's get into why specifically for you, yeah. ex and post evangelicals. When, yeah. did, when did that kind of come into the focus for you? So part of my background pedagogy is that I have been trained at two evangelical schools. Um, I went to Seattle Pacific University as my undergrad. I did my first master's at the Seattle School, which I would not define as evangelical because no. of its intercultural, intersectional approach. Yeah. And it was the first place that my like liberal theology was actually like somebody said from the front of the classroom, like, there's a history of this and you don't have to not be Christian to believe this. Yeah. Um, It's like my story of the last five years of my life. Yeah, totally. And then I went to Fuller and I almost completely said, screw the church at Fuller because Fuller was such a jarring experience. And I was really only there to do their arts program. I wanted to go to Sundance and stuff like that. Um, So through that process... I happened to become friends with one of the then scholars at Fuller named Barry Taylor, who does radical theology. And so my co-research partner, Steve Feckety, and I both are friends and were students of Barry's and kind of got into the Pete Rollins radical theology kind of space. And as we were engaging with that, we started connecting more with the ex-evangelical stuff and I What year was that? I met Barry in 2011. Okay. Cuz And it I was knew obviously... about Pete from 2005 but I didn't really okay. know who he was yeah. until about 2012. So this is kind of where if you want to get nerdy, the transition from what used to be called the emerging Emergent. church, yes. emergent church to now this kind of like well, Ex- maybe, maybe that's not most of the people aren't really doing that. Yeah. Maybe most of them are just sort of leaving evangelicalism and they're either finding nothing Christian, official. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Nothing under the Christian moniker. Or not going to church or something. Or they are joining other denominations right, right, or right. whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there's a conference that I, because I'm a nerd, I really love at the University of Boulder. It's the International Society for Media, Culture and Religion. So I went in 2014 and Jessica, who's at UW, who did her dissertation on Mark Driscoll. And yeah, I forget her last name. Yeah, but I've, yeah she's lovely. She was giving a presentation on Mars Hill. And so that was already in the milieu. Yeah. And so the next two years later, when the conference was coming back again, Steve and I ha- are both connected to the liturgist community and had been involved in that for a while and involved with Pete Rollins um, and Barry Taylor. And Derek Webb's release. The Airing of Grief. Yes, The Airing of Grief. And I also randomly through connections had met Derek a couple times and knew him and heard a bit of his story. And so as we were listening the fall before that paper call was happening to The Airing of Grief and Steve and I were both like, this is really interesting. This is a lot of stuff that we had been noticing being in those radical theology circles and kind of our own personal narratives of deconstruction. So I was like, do you want to submit a paper to this conference? And that's really what triggered it is 
we submitted a paper proposal based on a comment Derek made on the airing of grief. And then you had to do the work. And then we had to do the work. And so as nice. we started going, we started to notice these trends. And yeah. and there's a scholar whose name I can't think of right now who had researched the empty the pews hashtag. But nobody was really doing academic research on this looks like a community is forming around certain people. And it's really under these things like empty the pews and ex-evangelical or post-evangelical or or a slate speak, which is um, Tanisha Rush and Jason Chestnuts. Uh, they're not evangelicals because they're Lutheran, but it's that progressive Lutheran kind of community. And the, of course, the liturgists themselves. Liturgists, yeah. all of that. So as we started to look at that, we're like, stuff is happening. We want to kind of, this is interesting because it's our own narrative. Steve yeah. eventually wants to be a pastor of one of these churches or consult on that. I'm always kind of in and out of that. Yeah. So we started looking at it and we've been doing research for two years. We have... I have a couple papers that I've written on it. We've co-authored a paper, presented on the paper, and we're going to be submitting a book proposal soon on it. That's awesome. I mean, in a second, I'm going to have you describe it. But first, I have a question about numbers. Sure. My sort of naive sense from being involved is that five or six years ago, I knew of people doing this work. I've sort of been deconstructing since I was 18, but yeah, I was a philosophy I've major. been deconstructing since I was like 12. Right. So, but I, but I was a, like, I was a philosophy major. You're mm-hmm. supposed to do that. And so I always experienced it as like, well, I did, I had this major. So that put me down this path. Yeah. And when I run into people, I will end up talking about it with them because I'm interested. Sure. But I didn't have a sense, like I was in a touring band for 10 years and we were Christians and a lot of our friends were Christians, but we weren't in the Christian world, but we, we would come up against all these different people. A yeah. lot of them are Christians. I didn't have the sense of any kind of movement going on yeah. back then. Starting four years ago, five, six years ago, it's like, oh, this is actually met most of my, now I'm at a point where almost everyone I know that grew up like me either is deconstructing, has deconstructed, or is worried about how many of their friends are, are deconstructing or have deconstructed. Because they are still drinking the Kool-Aid and that cognitive dissonance is like down in the hole. I would, okay. I, <laughs> it's going to become clear that we have slightly different personal takes on this stuff. Yeah, but I, mean, that's I don't a, think that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think some of them don't find some of the same stuff troubling. Or sure. a big reason is they weren't raised with as violent, as disgusting, as extreme sure, yeah, versions. Yeah, yeah. And so they don't actually understand the need for it in the same way. No, I get that. Like my spouse was raised as a Southern Baptist and is actually ordained Southern Baptist. Although if they knew any of his views, they would kick him out immediately. (laughs) Careful who listens to this. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) I don't think he'd be upset if they finally kicked him out. But he grew up about 10 years after I did. And so I grew up in the heyday of the 80s and the purity movement and all the like apocalypse movement, all of that. He grew up in a much more moderate evangelical space. And so while he grew up in a more conservative denomination, he actually had a more moderate experience of all of that. Right, because it's just timing a lot of it. Yeah, and so he he didn't really have to deconstruct in a way. So is he 10 years younger than you? Okay. yes. Yeah, Yeah, so yes, I married somebody way younger than me. (laughs) Well, and it's, no, it's great. Way to go. Hey. (laughs) <laughs> Props. Um, yeah. But like, do we know how big this is? Like, does anybody have numbers we, or is it just my sense? We don't have a ton of numbers yet because I think we're we're the ones just on the cusp of this research. But from what we've done to kind of trace the history, this process really began with, say, someone like Carlton Peterson, who in early 2000, who he's, you know, he's coming out of Oral Roberts. He's like picked 
from Oral Roberts Conservative to be, school in Tulsa. Yeah, yeah, to be this, he's a black Pentecostal. He's picked to be like the the carrier on of this tradition. And about, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, he's like, I don't believe in hell. And like got kicked out, you know, has become a Unitarian, all of that. And at that same time... Is this the guy that that movie Come Sunday yes, is yes, about? Yes, It's on Netflix if you want to watch yeah, it. Yeah, and there's a really good... Um, Ira Glass did a really good mm-hmm. uh, story with him when it Around first... That. Yeah, yeah, first He's happened, a producer on the film, yeah. And then yeah. they re-released it two years ago. Right, that's right. But at that same time, I used to go to church with Dave Bazan at um, Grace Seattle. Mm. And at that same time, Dave... My, that's where my wife and I went for 10 years. Yeah, okay, church, so yeah. that might actually... We left a year ago. We have more mutual friends than we think. Um, So (laughs) Dave started his deconstruction process there. And I think a lot of the people I know started their deconstruction process there because the first pastor there didn't have the hardcore connection to um, staying reformed and staying acceptable in the reform movement as the current pastor is dead. And so the first pastor, Tommy, who was eventually removed for some stuff, and then Dave Sellers, who was the interim pastor, both of them were a lot more laxed in their reform process in the same way that Mark Driscoll and early Mars Hill was. And so once that hardcore totalitarian neo-Calvinist reformed kind of modality started to click in, that led to a lot of cognitive dissonance for people and them beginning to transition out. And I think that's where we're, where a lot of that started to happen as in the early 2000s, culture is changing and people are going, wait a second, my church where I've been bringing friends and they've been accepted, you know, suddenly, you know, around 2006, my small group at church is on the naughty list and our associate pastor is sitting in because we have some Buddhists and some non-religious people or some of us don't affirm, say, the inerrancy of scripture or whatever. Let me understand this. So this is the model I I think I'm hearing you put forward. Up to a point, let's call it maybe around 2000, early 2000s, most of evangelicalism had had quite a bit of top-down pressure to sort of keep it doctrinally pure. Around that time, emerging church, you got Rob Bell. Before yeah. Rob Bell does Love Wins, when he's just – and I mean he's certainly come to the left since his early emerging church days. Absolutely. I mean he was he trained was, at Fuller just yeah. like I was. So then we get some space there. Mm-hmm. Basically the emerging church and a little bit Brian McLaren in the mix yeah, yeah, and whatever. Yeah. Then what you're saying is like maybe a few years after that, it the pressure starts to come back like, oh, we've gone too far. And then the pressure is squeezing people out. Yeah. So they got a taste of air. They got a taste of something less authoritative, and they're like, we can't go back to more authoritative. Yeah. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Kind of. And I also think, like, up until the early 2000s, you know, the evangelical religious right, they haven't lost as much cultural currency. And so they're not worried about losing their power. Because if you look at the history of evangelicalism and the fundamentalist movement, which evangelicalism comes out of, especially post Scopes trial, their whole goal is to hold cultural power. They don't give a rat's ass about anything but holding cultural power. And they will couch it in whatever means necessary. Okay, But as you really look at that, Movement, that's really what they're trying to do. And so in the late 90s, early 2000s, they're starting to lose that culture of power because 
you know, if you look at statistics right now, like our generation, even church going, our generation is LGBTQT friendly. It's immigrant friendly. It's not judgy. It doesn't want totalitarian minus the small group of people who are still embedded in those yeah. conservative and fundamentalist churches. And so when our parents generation start bringing that back into the mix, we're like, what the hell is going on? And why are you doing this? Yeah, that so that part resonates with me. I think I'm I'm a little less convinced on like viewing it not necessarily solely, but primarily through a power lens. I'm sure that yeah. I definitely believe and that's, that's probably one, one of lens. my like, yeah, because my experience in church culture and with a lot of my friends really yeah. had to do with maintaining power. That's probably why that's the lens through which I see it. And I, I probably would agree with that for most of the power players mm-hmm. in the community that that is what they were doing. I I'm. The average Still, person probably yeah, isn't. I don't know how much it trickles down, right? I think they're just so wrapped up in what the power players are doing, and and see the power players as more valid than anybody else that they buy into the power, even if that's not their intentionality. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, I also think that like Emerson and Smith in their book "Divided by Faith," when they yeah. you know they're they're taking a racial angle, right. but they talk about free will, accountable individualism, yeah. as like. That's basically the thing that white evangelicals have come to believe. And that actually has a lot to do with like not going to seminary. That has a lot to do with Western sort of libertarianism. You know, so there's all that stuff is, but that's not all strictly about power. Right. And all of that really comes post scopes. Like we really get the rise of Bible schools and the creation of like fundamental schools because with scopes, they, they're pre scopes. You really have a diverse notion of fundamentalists. Some fundamentalists are very into education and really into a lot of social gospel stuff, even though they have other aspects of fundamentalism. And then, some are like reject culture, we reject education, but post scopes, you really see this anti-intellectualism movement yeah. coming in. Yeah. And even with the foundation of places like Fuller and stuff, which are evangelical fundamentalists at their roots, they're trying to be that middle ground. I guess what I'm saying is I don't see anti-intellectualism as primarily about power or cultural power. Sure. I think it's about protectionism, but that's not yeah. necessarily power. That might just be like, meaning like this has worked for my family and my community and I'm worried about it slipping away. You could call that power if you want, but it, I feel like that's not the best word for it. Yeah. I mean, probably you know I mean? maybe you probably need a more nuanced term yeah. for it, but, but it, it does seem to move in this trajectory of, we don't want to lose. We, we see ourselves as normative and, and the normative sure. description yes. and morality of the culture. And we want to maintain that space. But there's a there's a dark version of we see ourselves as normative, which is like, oh, I believe that I've really surveyed the landscape and we've got it, which yeah. is maybe some of the leaders. And then there's like the lay person, which is like, I don't know what the landscape is. <laughs> I know this has really worked and is beautiful right. and is like all the meaning in my life comes through this church community. And that's not, you know, right, what I mean? right, so right. that's yeah. anyway, I, I'm like, I'm tr- I try to be the man in black when no, it comes no, to the, no. the pew sitter. Yeah, I'll call the powerful people to account all day long. Um, anyway, we've we've solved it, Jesse. We no, we haven't solved it. But <laughs> no, and I, under- I understand that no, impetus. Course, yeah. I I I think my kind of lens is often, yeah. I mean, you know, my dad doesn't intend to be a complete racist in what he's saying, <laughs> but because my dad yeah. or whoever is taking this worldview from people like Franklin Graham, yeah. that. 
you actually are embodying that, even if you're not actually oh, yeah. at your core racist. And I think that's my my frustration is much like Kevin Garcia with his bad theology kills. It may not intentionally kill, but at the root, having yeah. a sin based theology that contours the world in a very black and white space leads to death. And I, I want to start at talking about how do we get out of that death cycle? Right. And we, we chatted a little bit about this off mic. And I agree, but I am just far more conservative in terms of how I think people like your dad will actually change their mind. Yeah, I mean... And so I'm just yeah. being a bit more pragmatic and you're being straight, more straight theory. Yeah. Both are needed. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because I've had my... I mean, my dad's conservative. My dad was legalistic growing up. Then he got into charismatic movement um, when I was... 20 ish because my mom was in a horrific car accident and is not cognitively all there anymore. Um, and Sorry. that was his like, thanks. That was his way of processing it. Yeah, right? right. So his faith has shifted, but there's still the sense of light. Sometimes we'll have these really amazing conversations about like his best friends nibbling who is trans and how, yeah, Ari's always been a boy and that makes sense that Ari's transitioning a boy. And then we'll have a conversation where he'll be like, oh, you know, men dressing up as women to assault people in the bathroom. And I'm like, do you know the statistics? Statistics are straight white pastors are more likely, you know, people who are going to sexually assault and abuse people than a trans person. So it's... Yeah, but people don't form beliefs based on statistics, mm -hmm. Jesse. <laughs> oh, I know. You know, so I mean... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm saying is like... Yeah. The lived experience of some of our parents as this zeitgeist of evangelicalism was taking over was as simple. And I don't know if you listened to the either of the purity culture episodes we've I done. I did listen to the purity culture one. So like uh, I can't remember if it was the one with Tina or the one with Linda, but it's like a lot of parents are just thinking, I don't want my kid to get AIDS. Yeah. So I'll just send them to this purity camp. It's not yeah. like they're, they don't even that's all. That's the yeah, whole yeah. thought process. And so you have to kind of go, okay, well, they it's the law of unintended consequences mm -hmm. is really what it, a lot of it is. Oh, sure. And I'm yeah. like, I I mean, I also grew up being asked if I wanted to die for Jesus because Jesus is going to come eight. Oh, you know, yeah. as a six-year-old, not psychologically appropriate questions. Well, and you also know there's some stuff coming on that issue yeah, yeah, on this yeah. show. Um, okay, so back to ex-post evangelicals. Sure. I'm interested about the title, the name. Yeah. So like, it, what I want to know is like, to what extent is this group defined self-defined or do scholars define them as that like it's opposed to something right. as opposed to emerging church which right, was right. a kind of a positive like this new thing is being birthed there's something interesting i think in that difference so yeah. what do you think's going on there well so post evangelical is a term that we get from dave tomlinson and his book in 1994 the post evangelical and that's coming out of the uk context um and it's much more sympathetic to the evangelical church it's like you're doing a lot of things great but there's these areas where if we can be more nuanced and more open and radically open to the mission of the gospel being good news then that's going to help with actually engaging with parishioners better and really being more sensitive to people's needs and and not isolating them or disconnecting them from something. And he's really coming out of like the first couple of years in the 90s and being at Greenbelt and seeing this kind of trend. And that's the phrasing that he comes up with. It's a really good book, although from an American Western context, it doesn't 
it doesn't deal with our fusion of politics. Right. The UK just doesn't have it because evangelicals are just a tiny minority. Yeah. And they don't have the cultural power that the religious right has really built up over the last 50 years. The Tories are not are not don't feel obligated to make UK evangelicals happy to get their votes. They don't need it. Right. Right. And then ex-evangelical. I think it was like 2008. We're starting to see that kind of begin. Maybe 2009. Um, Rachel Held Evans uses the phrase post-evangelical to describe herself 2010. And I think that moves into ex-evangelical in the like 2013, 12 to 13. And ex-evangelicals are U.S. based, more likely, they tend to be all of those of us who were raised as the continuation of the religious right movement in the 80s. And so because of that insider context, because of the amount of damage that was done because of that, it tends to be a lot less forgiving. I was just going to say, yeah, my my sense, the reason that I use the word post-evangelical, you know, having done no real research on this, but just I'm aware of the the ex-evangelical podcast and that there is a community and I have some friends who had some interaction with that community. My understanding is that the ex-evangelicals which is maybe not the same as ex-evangelical, which is no, hyphenated. No, you, you oh, can use it interchangeably. Okay. Yeah. So my understanding... At least based on what we've seen. Okay, yeah. My understanding is that it's more militant. Maybe these are people who were raised maybe in, in quite a bit more militant of an upbringing than I had. Uh, my dad was a therapist. Neither yeah. of my parents were fundamentalists. You know, I had some moderation right. from the beginning. Post-evangelical is a little softer way of saying, look, I no longer identify as evangelical theologically. Right. But like, I'm still in the church and I love God, you know, right. kind of a thing. It's a short way of saying that right. rather than peace, I'm out of here. Yeah. You all, you all can burn to this thing could burn to the ground for all I care. Right. Which, OK, maybe I'm being a little unfair. with that. Well, I but. mean, I mean, the slate speak people, Tanisha and Jason have a hashtag called burn it down or burn it all. Yeah. And and I agree with that. They also created the Fuck this liturgy, which is an amazing, amazing liturgical thing that comes from one of Micah Murray's poems in 2012 called Red in the Heavens. It's a beautiful Advent poem. Yeah. And they took that poem and created a whole Advent liturgy around it. And it's if you want something that's progressive, especially for marginalized people, it's a really amazing liturgy. Interesting. So that's on mediums. This liturgy is meaning like this liturgy is colonial and exploitative. No, and so it's more gonna... like it's his reflection of the of Advent and this mm. like tearing of of the world in that and just fuck this shit, the oppression the bad stuff yeah all come of jesus that. come yeah, come jesus okay. come yeah, oh basically. that's really interesting yeah i'll, yeah, it's I'll really we'll great. post a link to that as well so i think yes there is a lot more militancy with the ex-evangelical there's a lot more harm and abuse that happened to those of those of us who identify as that but it, it is interesting because there are those those of us like myself or like my co-author steve or even like mike mccart or Corey Pegg, who ha- are connected to churches. And Corey's a really interesting... He runs um, Failed Missionary Podcast. Yeah. And Corey's really interesting because Corey, yeah. Corey, over the last four, three or four years, you know, he's ex-YWAM. He's seen it all. He was very militant. And now he's working with Richard Rohr, and he's back into a form of Christianity, yeah. but it's radically different than what YWAM is youth with a mission. It is yes. a global... Like youth missionary organization that my wife did once. My summer. dad yeah. was a. My parents were on YWAM. Okay, so something that came up. So we we met uh, at this p- 
packed session at the American Academy of Religion. So crazy. It was just in the wrong room, basically. Apparently that session has been in the wrong room for the last five years. It's true. Um, people are interested in this demographic stuff yeah. because it's it's what they're seeing uh, at home. And totally. it's, it's nice to get some clarity, which is why I'm talking to you. Yeah. Um, Terry Shoemaker was also there. Yes. He was a guest on this show. The episode's called To Escape Cultural Christianity or something like yeah. that. He is doing really interesting work. Mm-hmm. I would say like you, he is really positioning himself as like a scholar advocate for the people who've been hurt yeah. in, in this world. He brought up something really interesting in the Q&A that I wanted to just kind of cue you up yeah. with. Or basically that evangelicalism, especially in the South, where he less so here in the West Coast, but yeah. in the South where he's studying, it's not just about beliefs. It's also a total way of life. Yeah. And if that's true, then growing up that way, we inherit more than just beliefs. We are sort of evangelical in our bodies, in yeah. a sense. Does that relate to why evangelical is still in the title, as opposed to something like emerging church? Yeah, I would absolutely say that. And I would say even though the culture of evangelicalism is different in Midwest South versus the West Coast, we can't escape it because it will always be our cultural heritage to have been raised in evangelicalism. So it is very much not just religious belief, but it, it is a religious belief formed through specific cultural context, specific cultural ideologies, through specific responses to things. Like I still, I don't believe in any of the evangelical notions of worldview or anything anymore. But when there is a political, like, you know, the rise of fascism throughout the globe, my little traumatized six-year-old apocalypse brain goes, is this the end of the world? Is, the is Trump coming? Yeah. Is Trump the Antichrist? Like, right. he's definitely Antichrist. But is is this thing that I was told to be aware of? happening and then i have to go well but that's not what the that's not how the text works i know from an academic standpoint cuz to untraumatize myself i took five classes on revelation oh my gosh our story is so similar um that, <laughs> on that issue yeah that i know from the te- that's not how the text functions that these are poor and really yeah, bad really and bad shaddy exegesis, yeah. exegesis and yet my traumatized child brain will always respond yeah. to global politics through yeah. that lens. Yeah, that's. I think that that is undeniably true. Yeah, it's true of anybody growing up in anything. But the more totalizing of a system it is, then yeah. the more of your own self you will never be able to understand without reference to it. Basically, absolutely. Yeah, and it's simple things like even in the moments where I've been completely removed from faith my husband laughs at me because i still want to pray like there's something about the act of praying Mm. even if i don't know if i believe in god that is comforting because it was such a thing embedded in me to be comforting that's something that i kick around and think different things about at different times i mean are there times where you're really grateful for that even if it was done in a coercive kind of a way um yeah i think so i mean i've been reading jamie lee finch's book you are your own for research um and she talks about naming our bodies right and it and reading her book i'm like oh trauma trauma i name my body as it and so because of my evangelical upbringing and that that dis, that bifurcation that we have between body embodiment and so it's been one of those things where i've consciously been talking to my son about his body as as he until he names his body differently because he can't talk yet yeah and and reconciling the two for him. I don't mean to spoil an upcoming 
end times mental health episode, which I think will air. That's awesome. Those will air after this probably. But um, one one guy says that he was suicidal for a while, and in that moment, his fear of going to hell. Uh, is the only thing that kept him alive. See, that's the opposite for me when I was suicidal. I was like, can I just be done with this stuff? Because apparently Mm. I'm supposed to go with God. So can I just go to sleep and go with God? There are people who said that, but this guy was like, I would have done it if not for hell as where I knew I would end up if I did do it. That's fascinating. But there were other people for whom, yeah, the rapture was basically a solution to their depression and anxiety. So they wanted Jesus to come quickly because their life sucked and was unbearable because of this theology. Yeah, my like worst moment mental health wise, I was like, please, I've never prayed, please, Jesus come, and except for that moment, yeah. those moments. So I really resonate with that. But that is four, That's totally something else. four future episodes. <laughs> We're going to spend There's plenty so many of time, <laughs> plenty of time on that. Um, I kind of want to. I don't know if you can help me do this. We, this may not work, but I'd like to place you have permission if sure. you can help me on a continuum of within this world. So yeah. I'll you you've looked at who I've interviewed and yeah. um have some sense and I'll just I have a little sentence here like I'm a post evangelical but I also spend a lot of time trying to understand where evangelicals are coming from. Sure. That's why I had Michael O. Emerson on to talk about that uh, race stuff and yeah. whatever. Um and my show is pretty focused on reconstruction if you want to call yeah, it that. Totally. Like, Which is important. Like I don't want to negate I think Especially the further and further Steve and I get in this research. Yeah. We're actually speaking at Central Avenue Church on the 5th of January, if you are in L.A., um, about deconstruction and reconstruction and the value of that. Yeah. Um, so I don't think reconstruction is a, a bad thing. It's actually really important, whatever that yeah. looks like. Yeah. But then my the reconstruction that I tend to talk about is pretty theologically liberal. Yeah. So where would you put that? Like in terms of other podcasts or resources websites um collectives i don't really even know all the landscape of this kind of world so i would say you're probably in the range of maybe inglorious pastors which is out of midwest yeah um you're definitely probably more right of like the liturgist or central avenue or the like radical theology stuff but that's not a bad place to be. Do because I barely I, qualify as the posty? No, I mean I think I think that's <laughs> I don't what's care, of that's course. what's interesting is like you're holding this post evangelical space, right? So by nature, being post evangelical is is the the space of bridge building because yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Some yeah. you know, there's there's those of us who are just like we're 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 almost the Unitarians if we're going to stay in church, yeah, and then there's the people who don't even want anything to do with church anymore. And then there's the people who are still in evangelicalism and, and see the problems of evangelicalism, but their identity is so core. Like my best friend is like this. I love her to death, but she will not let go of the term evangelical. And we're like, but look at all of these things. She's like, I'm an evangelical. And I'm like, do you realize that's synonymous with racism at this point? Like white evangelical is synonymous with racism in this country. But for her, because all of her formation is through Calvary Chapel, is through Seattle Pacific, is through these spaces and who her parents are and her relationship with her parents, she cannot, that's just not something she can do. I also think it's her right to say, Look, the media has decided or whatever that that's the new definition of evangelicalism, and I reject that definition. I mean, she could say that too. Yeah. She could say, I hold the, the 
the five tenets of classical evangelicalism, and I don't care if, you know, in 20 years from now, I won't be that way anymore, which may or may not be true. Maybe it will be even more racist in 20 years. Who knows? Or it won't exist in 20 years. Or it will, well, I mean, the Amish still exist. Right. Um, They're just very small. Yeah, but the Amish, like, aren't aren't trying to contour anybody else into their worldview, which is right. the distinction, I think. Yeah, so that's true. If if evangelicalism were to become something more like the Amish, some of that focus would have to shift yeah. to more insular. Absolutely. Um, which you could see happening. I mean, the Benedict Option, that's more on the kind of orthodox, Catholic, and and like conservative Anglican world. Right. This idea of maybe we need to just sort of retreat um, in a positive sense, like build something beautiful ourselves away from sort of uh, pluralist culture. Yeah. And I could see evangelicalism going that way in 10, 20 years post-Trump when that voting block has aged and no young people are replacing it you know, because well, – or that, very few anyway. The ironic thing we'll is that voting block right now is that they're less than 20 percent of the population too. That's what like is so frustrating. But yeah, I mean, potentially, I think you already have pockets of like fundamentalism and evangelicalism that move into that not engagement with the world. It's that's what's really interesting, you know, as we're talking 1920s post scopes, like there was a lot of isolationist fundamentalists. And if they had if most of them had stayed isolationist, we wouldn't be where we are now. Yeah, that's that is the defining thing about evangelicalism as opposed to some of the more um, insular fundamentalist movements is that. No, no, we we really do kind of want to, like you you see it just in your your neighborhood Bible church. Yep. Like there's a big screen, there's a loud like uh, seeker friendly is we we want you to be able to bring your neighbor basically. Right, and we want a space that that is like that is not intimidating to them so that they can hear the gospel. And that's you know you have your question that you you know on the list of questions that we're talking about you have your question about these mega churches. The mega churches like Mars Hill before it imploded, like Mosaic in Seattle, like Real or not in Seattle, in LA, reality, those churches, they are they are doing that. They're playing into word for word the evangelical model of we're gonna do all the shiny things so that you don't see our Southern Baptist origins. So until you get into leadership, you don't know that we actually are not affirming and not welcoming in leadership. And if you are in leadership and you are non-straight person, we're not going to let you lead and we're going to shame you in that. So let's actually talk about that. Um, I'm sympathetic in part to what those churches are trying to do as an affirming person myself. Yeah. um, I, as we've been, as has become clear and (laughs) on and off mic, I, I think I'm just a lot more open to like slow change especially in individuals and institutions as well that like i just think that's kind of the only way it tends to really happen at all other than really cataclysmic suffering which i'm not wishing on people the only other way people change slowly uh through slight shifts in who becomes a role model and who's no longer a role model and all that stuff and so i'm i'm sympathetic to a church like like a quest church here in seattle that's like a thousand people at a service super multicultural the fact that it's multicultural means an issue like Gay affirmation is going to be harder to get through because right. basically non-white uh, ethnic groups are more conservative on on metrics like that. Depending on who you're talking to, to be, yeah. Yeah, but I mean like just 
in terms of voting and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. You know, for instance, there are very few black denominations that are openly affirming in the United States. And there's like two of them. Right, right, right. Whereas there's... Which, if you start looking at demographics of queer black Christian scholars, like a lot of the blacks, uh, black liberation scholars and black womanist scholars are either queer or working in queer spaces, which is fascinating that we see that. Yeah. Like the, the And there's running jokes I've heard from several of my friends who are black church affiliates that like there's a running joke that black church worship pastors are always gay men you know <laughs> but they but anyway they're not able to sort of right there's that cognitive dissonance that. happening yeah so um but i'm but i'm sympathetic to what a church like quest is trying to do where their goal is not to exclude gay people on staff they probably have a variety of opinions maybe more than 50 percent would hope for inclusion they also have this competing goal of having a church with true raci- yeah. racial equity and parity. Absolutely. And those are going to come into conflict. Maybe even not for them, but you can imagine many churches where yeah. the, these two goods are going to come into conflict. So I, I, I get that. And, right. and I don't envy their decision-making process. Totally. But I'm more interested in these churches like, yeah, like Mosaic, like Mars Hill was – that are basically Baptist reformed yeah. churches. They're either neo reformed or they're Southern Baptist. Yes. Yeah. But have, you know, they're, they're hipster churches, basically. If you go to them, they're full of well dressed young people. Yep. If you looked at the haircuts and the clothes of a post or ex evangelical community and this, you might not be able to tell the difference. They're coinciding. They seem yep. to me to be sort of opposite, they're opposite ends of a bifurcation. Something like that. I'm wondering what you think about the fact that these are because some of those churches yeah. are really thriving. Oh no, with they young are. people. They are. I think one factor is that most of those mega churches that are actually like fundamentally conservative, but you don't know it, is that they're they're very seeker sen- sensitive. Their their goal is to be a seeker sensitive church, right? Most of the post ex evangelical churches aren't about evangelism. And so that's a key factor. Like that's something with Central Ave, which has been around for at least six or seven years, if not longer. So tell me about Central Ave. I'm not familiar with that Okay, So Central Ave is this church in Glendale, California, and it was a Baptist church. And my friend Aaron Van Voorhees is a pastor. And he came on when it was a Baptist church. And but he's part of the radical theology group. And so he slowly started contouring and about two, two or three, you would have to ask him because I don't know the details. I think it's two or three years in, in his, into his pastorship, the leadership board surprisingly looked at him and said, we don't really want to do what you're doing, but we think what you're doing is good in this deconstruction, creating a safe space. So we're just going to give you everything and you can have the church, you can have the parsonage and we're going to let you do your thing. And they kind of walked away. And so it's, it's the small, but really cool post evangelical to some extent post-Christian, but not because it's still Christian in, in a lot of what I would say the core text values of Christianity. And he, you know, he hosts like last spring, we I helped him facilitate a feminist theology series. So we had different feminist theologians coming and speaking for six weeks. Brief aside, how many cities have really churches like this? There are not very many. Guess not many. Yeah. Like I bet there's people listening going, is that I wish I lived in Glendale, you know, well, or whatever. And that, but he does a podcast, so you can listen to okay. it. it What's, like, that show? What's it called? Um, it's central. It's called the Central oh. Cast, I think. It's Central Avenue Church, Glendale, California. Okay. In we'll the put same a link way, in the, show notes. in the same way that um, 
Jay Baker does Revolution Church. So Jay's moved, you know, four different places, but he still continues to do something like that. There aren't that many, but as Terry's research is showing, I think Terry's getting at the fact that there are actually these communities. They're just still, they still look like evangelical churches because of where they're located. Let's take a quick break. Yeah. And when we come back, I want to talk about first and second naivety. Okay. And how that uh, applies to this situation totally. here. So, this month, second half of this month, for patrons of this show, the they actually got two sort of exclusive episodes, if you will. They're not really exactly episodes this time. The first was a full-length interview, uh, one of four that I did for an upcoming episode, which is a follow-up to the End Times Anxiety series. And it's essentially asking one question. It's asking, why was this left-behind end time stuff so popular when people in my generation grew up in evangelicalism. Just why was it popular? Why was it so big? It's one option among many. How did it capture the zeitgeist? Uh, and so I did uh, four interviews with baby boomers about this, about their experience in the Jesus movement in the seventies uh, and just their insight about all of that stuff. Really interesting stuff. I'm really excited. I've been working on that uh, this last week and it's pretty close to being able to put together, but one of those episodes was just, uh, sorry, episodes, one of those interviews was so good that I thought, well, this thing's not going to play in its entirety, but it's worth sharing with the patrons. So I did that. And then the, the second piece of audio was the recording of a Zoom hangout that I did with the uh, patron group or whoever could make it. Uh, we, we organized that through the Facebook group, which is also for patrons only. And we had an awesome like Q&A time and we did some breakout groups there. I didn't record the breakout groups because that stuff's more confidential uh, among smaller parties, but all the Q&A, which was basically a response to uh, last week's, uh, or was it two weeks ago? Why I'm Still a Christian episode, two weeks ago. And uh, we had that was great. Really great questions, um, just interesting issues raised. So those are the two most recent bits. Of course, if you're a patron, you also have access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, as I mentioned. Um, and you get to feel good about supporting this show. It's $5 a month. Uh, if you can't afford that right now, and I mean, especially if the pandemic is affecting your economic outlook for your family, I totally get that. There is a sliding scale. You can email me about that at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. We can chat. But generally speaking, it's five bucks and you get all that stuff and you get to feel great. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. Okay, back to my conversation with Jesse whose, you know, academic name is Jessica. We go back and forth with those two names. All right. So, Jesse, something that came up also in, in the Q&A from this session. Yeah. I, <laughs> it was pandemonium in there. I mm. mean, it was like a room that fit 50 and there were like 90 people. I know. it was. I was like shocked and excited and a little bit like, it oh, was my great. God. <laughs> and some really great stuff came up in the Q&A. Yeah. And, and this is one of them. So... Uh, I, I always forget the name of the thinker who said this, and someone told me recently the other day, but it's first naivety and second naivety. But that's another way of saying deconstruction, reconstruction. Is it Lacan? It might be Lacan. Yeah, I don't know some... if it's – yeah, maybe. Or there's the Zen proverb, the the mountain was the mountain and the river was the river. Yeah. Then they weren't, and then they were again. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So 
It's like you're given something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes meaningful. For some people, that gets challenged and torn down. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you return and you rebuild something that yeah. is like it but not the same. That analogy fits the experience of almost every single person I've ever talked to that has gone through this stuff. Yeah. And so what I'm wondering is how much of the very existence of the post slash ex evangelical world is a result of the churches that people were being raised in simply not allowing for that, what I would consider to be a pretty normal human process to occur in those spaces. And therefore we need a new space. I would say that's probably a pretty accurate like assessment. I mean, Patton Oswalt has that joke, right? That he's going to be conservative with his kids so that they have something to rebel against. Right. (laughs) Um, And I think there is this notion of like part of our, at least from a Western standpoint, our developmental process is that rebellion. Right. But the lack of critical thinking that really was present with the religious right and even how they spin their narratives about how it comes to origin. The, I'm sure you know this. The religious right was not founded on anti-abortion. They pick up abortion to hide the fact that they're anti-integration. Right. Although it didn't grow until it switched to abortion. Right. That's but, again, another one of my defending but the pew-sitters, but until, not those in power. Up until 1982-83, there is no cohesive view in right. In Christianity in the U.S., like mm-hmm. the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist, the president of Southern Baptist mid-70s is writing about cases when abortion is valid. Right. Yeah. And so it gets wrapped up in this. What I take from that most of all is that the sense of ahistoricity yeah. in evangelicalism is so strong. It's just the early church and then fast forward to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the idea. And like, or we just read the Bible. But the a, it's that ahistorical thing that is so much of a cause that, of problems. That goes back to, you know, your question about deconstruction. Like, I remember sitting like first year at SPU, religious studies classes, and having people come who didn't come from a historical denomination, right? So they're coming from their podunk evangelical church and they're in church history class or in polity class where we're talking about where do the creeds come from and they're they completely lose it because they don't understand the history of 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 their denomination or their church's origin or whatever we were in six different nominations by the time i was 15 so i didn't have one cohesive theological trajectory so when we were sitting in that class i'm like oh yeah that makes sense okay cool but for so many people they like dropped out of our program because they're they weren't given the space to understand the histories of where they came from and because it's so totalitarian and it's so this is the only way to read the bible this is the only way to vote this is the only way to do this when they encountered even at a moderately evangelical school like spu which was not progressive and i like we couldn't dance while i went there because dancing leads to sex standing up Uh, or drink we couldn't drink because Drinking leads to dancing leads to sex training. People would lose their faith because they weren't given a robust faith to begin with. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what this show exists for. Um, I feel like I've been saying that a lot recently. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on comparing and contrasting this movement, this Mm -hmm. ex-post-evangelical movement, 
with what's happening in Catholic circles, which is a bit more a sex bit, abuse yeah. oriented. There is a well, little bit of church two stuff. Texas, and that's that, happening. that Houston Chronicle article last year and the one that just came out last week, like SPC has, what is it, like 300, 400 documented cases over the last 20 years of sexual assault in the church. Emily Joy so, and Hannah Posh, who started the Me Too, uh, Church 2 hashtag, yeah. like there is a lot of activism around the hidden sexual assaults within totally i just mean that at a population level that hasn't quite had the impact of like spotlight right right because you don't have such a hierarchy of church we're more spread out and for 40 years now tens of millions of catholics have either continued worshiping or left under the cloud of sex abuse scandals yeah for sure. church two is like three years old yeah and it's gonna uncover more yeah and it it's necessary but it it, ha- it, it doesn't have the impact. That I don't know anybody who is questioning their evangelical faith because of sex abuse scandals. Not yet. Yeah. Maybe some thirteen-year-olds now yeah. will learn that. So, you know, or whatever. Yeah. So although the Hybels thing did have a huge yeah, impact, Hybels was big. That's yeah. true. Um, although it seems to me to have an impact, have had an impact on people who are already likely to kind of be over Willow Creek yeah, and Hybels, yeah. right? It was more like a oh, could have seen that coming, as opposed to like. Shaking people to their core, yeah, fresh, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, what's the difference, like, from a social scientist level, yeah, of like people questioning or leaving the church, whatever, over Catholic sex abuse versus uh, the the reasons they're leaving so, evangelicalism? I think the sex abuse scandal catalyzed a lot of was this big kind of get behind and the suppression of and the the like oh my gosh who is it um. BuzzFeed. So BuzzFeed stuff typically kind of, you know, is hokey, whatever. Their deep dive stuff. Their journalism their can be journalism. quite good. Yeah. The so, listicles. Yeah. They're lis- <laughs> Not so much, yeah. yeah. So they, they, last year, they produced a really disturbing but interesting series on nuns abusing children across Catholic orphanages that mirrors the abuse of nuns in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think you have this long history, right? You have the Magdalene spaces with um, the Magdalene houses in Ireland and Scotland. And a lot of that is all tied up in one tenet of Catholicism, which is the celibacy of priests, right? Evangelicalism, Protestantism has always been so loosely connected that I think we see, at least from our research, and even in the three people I profile, there there's overlapping reasons why people are leaving, but for different people, different things are the catalyst. So for someone like Tori Douglas, the catalyst for her, even though uh, sexuality issues and queer issues were an issue, for her, she leaves evangelicalism, leaves Mars Hill specifically, because of Ferguson, because of the way her church just kept flat out ignored the racism and the death of Michael Brown. And that for her is the catalyst. Whereas someone like Kevin Garcia, who is biracial, who's also queer for him, his queerness is what gets him to leave the church, you know? Um, And for someone like Jamie Lee Finch, it's being in a, you know, problematic new apocalyptic, new religious community and having moved across the, Across the pond. Yeah. And her missionary yes. experience. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I think for each person, that catalyst looks different. I know, um, you know, we brought up the fact that we both attended Grace Seattle. I have friends who left Grace Seattle 
when the original pastor left. I have friends who left when they didn't pick up the interim pastor. I have friends who left because mutual friends were, who had been in a relationship for like 12 years, had been members of the church, lived together for the month and a half before they got married and they got excommunicated. So different people's catalysts, reasons for leaving, shift based on their history and their background yeah. and what for them is a breaking point. Yeah, that seems right. So you mentioned those three people. Um, I'm, we're we're going to link to your paper, and I'm yeah. also going to put a link to each of those three. These are all public figures, yeah, so yeah. their stuff is online. And they're the three that you chose to focus on yeah. in the paper. I'm wondering, we talked about the hipster megachurches yeah. and how that's interesting as a parallel that's yeah. happening at the same time. Another thing that came up in that Q&A is just the more basic idea of charismatic figureheads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In some sense, the post-evangelical, ex-evangelical thing is so suspicious of that. I mean, I know, yeah. for instance, the Bad Christian podcast, their their central thesis is basically like the, the church needs to stop rallying around charismatic men who don't have accountability. Right, right, like, right. That's probably the number one thing yeah, they talk about. Yeah, I mean, that's, about. that's potentially one of the key aspects of my doctorate thesis might be why is there a rise of uh, sex cults that catalyze around a figurehead who at some point goes, I should sleep with everybody, and God told me I can sleep with yeah. everybody. But yeah, the charismatic thing is interesting, and it's interesting because I think the way it parses out in ex-evangelicalism, which comes to that question of the scandal in May, right? So... There's, you've got call it culture. Yeah, you have to. So I'm going to I was going to ask about that second. Yeah. So why don't you do that first? So there was a kind of a blow up within. There's a big blow up the ex-evangelical Twitter community. And what happened was early Jamie Lee Finch, who is one of those those kind of figures, she's connected to liturgists. Um, she's connected. To, she's one of the producers on the airing of grief. Um, she's a ex-missionary. She posted something and it was based on her own experience as a white woman coming out of evangelicalism and she got some pushback, but that was that was handled pretty gently. And then there was this thing posted on Medium by a group called the Magdalene Collective, which were several people, um, mostly female identified figures or trans identified people in the in the Twitter community. And I've never actually seen the document because by the time I woke up that morning, it was erased and I can't find a link to it. But that led to this huge, big conflict between various people who were kind of in leadership e positions throughout the context. And But just like evangelicalism, there's no real central there's, leadership. Yeah, there's in no central leadership. Right. And just the relational bifurcation that happened um, led to Blake Chastain, who runs ex evangelical taking stopping ex-evangelical for six months he just recently within the last month has started doing interviews again and people just like cutting off stuff if there's a really good nate sparks has on his blog which i can send you a link to has a really good like breakdown of what happened so that's what i've used to kind of unpack some of that and a lot of it has to do with people being frustrated with certain people who are white being figures. And there's been – but what what is distinct, I think, within ex-evangelical circles that doesn't happen with evangelical circles is that when these things have happened – like the first season of Bearing of Grief was mostly white 
white people, mostly white men. Most of them were gay, but they were mostly white men. And so because of that, they um, the leadership immediately said, we don't want to capitulate this patriarchal structure. So we're going to actively seek and do the work through our podcast to decenter whiteness. And I think that's the benefit or the hope of ex-evangelical is there is that intersectional lens. And there is that for most people seeking to change and be conscious of, we don't want to recapitulate patriarchy. We don't want to recapitulate colonialism or racism or sexism or all the things that damaged people coming out of this thing. And they're doing it messy and it's hard, but you really do have people like Mike McCart who advocates for and raises up people who wouldn't necessarily get that raise up. And you have um, Nadia Boltz-Weber and people like that and Jeff Chu who are doing that work as well. And that's why Rachel Held Evans was such a huge figure in that in those communities because she really advocated and upheld people who wouldn't have had voice. Like there are Islamic scholars that I know that she gave credibility to and are have have credibility in evangelical circles and post-evangelical circles because Rachel advocated for them. So what was the actual disagreement about? Was it that like what are the two camps if there are two camps? I mean, so what happened was this statement was written by the Magdalene Collective, and I still don't exactly know who all was involved with that. And then Chrissy Stroop came out, and Chrissy was Chris at that point, and said, well, this is anti-trans, and it's the, um, what's the moniker for, it's turf. It's the turf yeah. statements. And so there was a back and forth about that because Chrissy has since come out as a trans woman. And so there's been conversation. And so that's what Nate's kind of parsing out is what's going on. And certain people who are kind of bigger figures kind of took Chrissy's side and other people took, you know, whoever's side. And- it, uh, is it too crude to say it was an argument over like su- sufficient wokeness in the community or yeah, something like was- that to put a, a non fine point on it, of course? I definitely think there was some of that call out culture yeah. and, and call out culture is important, right? Like call out culture's intentionality from its origin is coming from black and brown advocate. If call out culture stayed amongst black and brown advocates and that then I might be more sympathetic to it well, than so, when it's a bunch right, of white people on right. Twitter. You know? So call it culture origins with not advocates, but social justice yeah. activists, activists yes, calling out white people mostly white men in power right so its origin is really good but it has been taken on by communities and and becomes problematic there's a really good um podcast on like the hardcore scene in virginia about the problematic nature of hardcore it's um it's not this american life but it's one of those npr podcasts that talks about this last year yeah so you have some of that problematic call out culture um my my issue um, there's a number of issues with it i mean i I tend to be I'm pretty convinced by Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lukianoff, coddling of the American mind stuff that like there's a number of factors with Gen Z specifically that have sort of served them poorly in terms of their own psychological and personal development such that one of the things that's led to some of these admittedly few uh, kind of blow ups on super liberal campuses and stuff like that, which, of course, there aren't as many as the news would have you believe. Right. Absolutely. But they are. But they are worrisome to me when they have happened i I think what's happening for your average white twitter activist is that they're getting all the dopamine hits of like actually doing a 
civil rights uh, busing campaign without, without actually having the danger. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and just kind of like probably destroying some people's lives and careers in the process for their own dopamine benefit, which yeah. is not good. Yeah. And uh, so, but of course some people do need to be called out and yeah, democratization of the internet has produced a bunch of benefits of course as well. And you know, yeah. et cetera. So and it's I think the way the stuff with Jamie was handled was really good, be- mm, cool. I, but the stuff with Chrissy just kind of blew up and that got very messy and a lot of people were triggered because it was similar to experiences they had had in evangelical context. And so that's where a lot of that fallout came was people were re-traumatized or their PTSD was triggered. And there are valid critiques and on both sides, I think. And it's hard because as a scholar, I want to be able to, you know, sit and, and still engage with both sides of the coin and so i'm I'm, yeah. a, I'm a lot more cautious about how i'm it's engaging and who i'm engaging yeah i mean a lot of people identify as scholar activists and that's interesting and because sometimes we need to be activists and advocates but at the same time some part of being a scholar is dispassionate research maybe not maybe that's impossible to do entirely dispassionate research but like you do want to find as hard of facts as you can. You, you know, it's like good journalism right. or something. Yeah, you want to, I mean, there's, there's a tension there. Yeah, you, acknowledging the fact that nobody is unbiased. Right. You also don't want to be the one who's like constantly tweeting incendiary things, right? Right, which uh, has actually hurt a lot of uh, journalist credibility among people on the other political spectrum. Yeah. Um, the, some people have said like, journalists should not be on Twitter. Like they journalists, or if they do, they put their stories out. Because, like, the whole point, you're supposed to be able to trust a journalist that they are trying to do the best job they can. Now, I don't know yeah. that I buy that. Some I, people would I, say that's yeah. a lie. But it might convince more people on the other side if they didn't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't have a dog I mean, in that I fight. Think, I think my department and my program is very intersectional. So, like, women's studies and gender studies, which is one of my the components of my degree, is that more origins and activists academics mm-hmm. um whereas my religious studies is much more traditional white western canon and yeah. stuff so i think there's a case for both i think the 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 unfortunate thing was just as ex-evangelicals were starting to get a lot of you know there was the cbs documentary there were more news stories oh, cbs news. cbs yeah, did yeah. a um documentary in the spring just at that point there's like this blow up yeah i mean you could certainly see a critic going pointing to this as sort of bad fruit. Like yeah. they didn't, they didn't have, and you know, of course that's, that might be hasty. We're almost out of time. I want to just, I yeah. want to wrap that story into the question of charismatic figureheads. Yeah. In one sense, we might take from that story that the, the fractured nature of this movement is such that charismatic figureheads will never truly emerge with any kind of consensus. But yeah. then there are people like, Michael Gunger and Mike McCarg yeah. from liturgists who are certainly there some kind of thought leader. Uh, but what's interesting figures. with both of them, um, I don't know if you know Stephanie Drury. Stephanie is one of those people where she will call it as she sees it. And and that can be detrimental sometimes to relationships. But she, that's who she is. And she's an ally and an advocate. And you know, it's interesting because we interviewed her for our original research paper and she was talking about how Michael Gunger can be a jackass and has been a jackass to several of the women in the Twitter community. Whereas Mike McCart 
I I have never, from my interactions with him and everyone I know, has never had that. So even with them, you have that kind of polarizing. One of them is can be a polarizing character. That is very interesting. The pe- <laughs> the people that I am friends with uh, who have opinions on this stuff uh, have a harder time with Mike McCarg. Interesting. Um, because I think because they're sensitive to the kind of um, all out social justice warrior for i'm not i'm not using that term no, out no, of my no, own no. mouth you understand in quotes uh kind of a thing whereas gunger seems to sort of try and stay out of that more yeah so definitely. you might have it's interesting you can have people who have totally different opinions yeah. uh, or different takes on that and maybe i guess that is kind of what we're talking about that it's it just perhaps it won't the structure of this movement if, if we can call it that will not support any kind of consensus right. because people feel free to have their own experiences and whatnot. And I think that's the benefit of it. I think the way I look at it, uh, at the ex-evangelical, post-evangelical movement is that it's more coalition work and it's more that movement of there are certain things we agree on and there's certain things that we're going to dismantle. But what's beautiful about it, and I think this is what really interests us in the statement that Derek made, it's on uh, The Spirit Bears the Curse. And he was talking about like community, right? And communities to deconstruct in because we have communities to to come to faith in. That the community that's formed, there are people who identify as Wiccan and pagan now. There are people who identify as non-religious now. There are people who still are connected to church. And in a lot of these spaces, specifically if you're looking at some of the Facebook groups and stuff like that, we're going to a liturgist event, we're going to a Dave Bazan concert, we're going to Derek Webb or Jennifer Knapp concert, you're seeing all of these people whose common band is having left evangelicalism. Yeah. And unlike the evangelical church, they actually are trying to find a space to hold each other well in a radical inclusion space, which they were told that they would have would have in evangelicalism and didn't. And so I think that's what's interesting about it. And I think that's where there can be those pain moments, too. Yeah, in one sense, we're just very early, right? I mean, it's like, it it's just it's very early in the process yeah. of this new thing that's being birthed and it might yeah. be more like i don't know if you know trip fuller from homebrew yeah trip's a good friend yeah yeah so trip talks a lot about when he talks with people like pete or barry taylor he talks about the fact that radical theology isn't like a belief structure radical theology exists to critique church and i think potentially ex-evangelical is not a group that exists in and of itself. It's a group that's existing to push against the dominance of the religious right and the dominance of the pairing of the religious right with evangelicalism. (laughs) What will be historically interesting is if evangelicalism ends up waning just through its own designs of aligning with Trump and that the ex and post evangelicals barely made a dent in that. Yeah. And (laughs) which, hey, if that if it needs to die and that's how it dies, then that's how it dies. I, I imagine some people having listened to this will feel like, oh, that is something like I, I, you're you're mostly looking at sort of I mean, you're studying and I think you're a part of the further left, for yeah. lack of a better term, whatever quadrant of this than I am a part Absolutely, of. Absolutely. Yeah. And some people will hear that and go, oh, that's so refreshing. That is I need that. I need that. Per- I need that permission, that mm-hmm. kind of additional permission. And other people will be like, I've kind of seen that, like, I, I'm ready to come back to something a bit more structured, but that sure. doesn't have this bullshit that I had before. And I think that's been that's been interesting. I mean, it's clear in chatting that 
we don't agree on all of this stuff, but I really enjoyed talking with you about it and, and hearing it out, hearing you out and, and getting your, well, so you both spoke as a scholar, which I wanted to learn. And then we've editorialized yeah, a bit totally. ourselves. It's so good. I mean, this is going to have, I'm not even going to say right now all the things that the show notes will have because some <laughs> might get added. Yeah, and probably. And that, that'll come in the outro. I like, um, I'm one of my like strength finders is resourcing. So <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly. I, this will definitely break the record. Yeah. Um, well, Jesse, thank you so much yeah, for your time. Totally. I really Thanks appreciate much. it. So yeah, a lot of resources came up in our conversation. I've put links for as many of them as I could track down in the show notes, including Jesse's Twitter. And as she said, she is great at resource finding. So feel free to hit her up there. I will say that just this past week, a few days ago, I watched the documentary on Lonnie Frisbee that is in the notes here. And I really enjoyed it. It's only 50 minutes long. Five zero. It gives a very helpful glimpse into the Jesus movement and how it shifted and changed Uh, changed and changed into the evangelicalism that so many of us grew up with. In fact, it was really relevant uh, given this follow-up episode that I've been working on about end times amongst baby boomers. Anyway, it's two bucks. It's $2 rental on Amazon. I definitely recommend that. So that's in there. Uh, Jesse's Twitter, Central Avenue Church in LA, the Church Clarity website, all of that in the show notes. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Jesse for trekking to the studio obviously that occurred before the lockdown that was back over christmas holiday when we recorded this thanks to josh gilbert for editing the conversation he is available for other editing work and his email address is in uh, the show notes as well also my instagram is in the show notes if you want to follow it's mostly just photos of baby soren these days uh, which is what is really what the people come for let's be honest that's the kind of content they want to see uh, and yep, as usual, you can join the Patreon, five bucks a month, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod, click become a patron, uh, you have permission pod.com that is, uh, and you can email me about anything. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. I don't always get back quickly, but I try to get back to everybody eventually. All right, guys, we'll see you next week with another episode.